Hello and welcome to Following the Rules. This is a podcast about the rules shaping UK and EU financial services and the people responsible for understanding and implementing them. Because in one of the world's most regulated sectors, following the rules isn't always easy. I'm your host, financial journalist Lucy McNulty, and every episode I'll be asking the most influential personalities in financial regulation for their input on the sector's most pressing issues. Oxbow Partners is happy to support this episode of Following the Rules. Oxbow Partners is a management consultancy specialising in the insurance industry. In 2022, we were again named one of the top 10 consultancies in the sector by the Financial Times. We help our clients, who include insurers, reinsurers, regulators and investors, with everything from growth strategy to operations, technology and M&A, not to mention the impact of the increasingly complex regulatory environment on their businesses, such as the current FCA General Insurance Pricing Fairness Rules, about which you'll find lots of commentary on our website, oxpopartners.com. If you're keen to understand the challenges and opportunities coming down the track for your business, please drop us a line. In the meantime, enjoy this podcast. Now, you could say it was a little bit disingenuous of the FCA to use that rhetoric in the first place, and that actually, as time has gone by, we need to call them out for that. Today's guest outlines how the UK markets watchdog is falling short in its efforts to police poor behaviour among city bosses. He details what regulators are doing now to more closely track the culture of financial institutions under their watch, and what the firms in question are getting wrong in their response. And he explains how behavioural science could be applied to the UK regulatory framework to better facilitate compliance with the rules. These are all subjects close to his heart, because Roger Miles is a behavioural risk expert with a PhD in the psychology of regulatory design. Since 2016, he has led lobby group UK Finance's Conduct and Culture Academy as its co-founder and faculty leader. Hi Roger, welcome to Following the Rules. Thank you Lucy for the invitation. Let's start with the UK Finance Academy. Could you tell us more about the Academy for those who may not be familiar with it? What is it, where did it come from and where is it headed? The short version is, (laughs) Uh, I used to work directly for UK Finance, so a few years back I was their Director of Communications and having had a previous career, trained as an accountant, worked in investor relations and then as a lobbyist in various places in the days when it was still the BBA, British Banks Association, and I became interested in the wider financial education, took myself off, did a research degree, ended up on a panel teaching at Judge Business School at Cambridge University in a programme sponsored by Barclays which was a sort of prototype academy. And in the course of that work, ran into Patrick Butler, my colleague on the UK Finance Academy. And Patrick and I approached UK Finance and said, look, we have the guts of a good curriculum and we'd like to make it available to all of UK Finance's members. So I forget the numbers of members at that point. It was around sort of 250, possibly 300 London financial firms. So UK Finance's membership is principally banks and some other actively regulated firms in the UK financial markets. This is around six, seven years ago. The senior managers regime had just been launched. And there was at that point a very strong appetite for people who've been newly appointed into conduct risk jobs, as they called it then. And we felt it'd be good to take that level of principally middle to senior and senior managers and give them easy tools that could engage with this new regulation. And because we have good working relationships, not just with UK regulators, but also internationally, this is very much a global enterprise of conduct regulation. It's not just UK centric. We felt it would be good to share those insights to not just so much do training, but have interactions with senior members of the financial community 
in the UK here and build a curriculum that really filled in the knowledge gaps, acknowledged where there are grey areas and so on. Very happy to say we've now been running the academy for more than five years. We've put over 100 senior conduct leaders through it and several hundred more in terms of people attending occasional conferences and webinars and roundtables and so on. So it's had a big positive impact, I'd like to think. Brilliant. So you mentioned the senior managers and certification regime, and obviously those are accountability rules that the FCA introduced for senior bankers in 2016 and for senior fund managers in 2019. And what they do is they shift the responsibility on from the regulator to make sure that behaviour is taking place as it should to the senior managers themselves. They have a series of principles that they have to follow and if they don't then they have to be able to explain to the regulator why not and show that they took reasonable steps to address that misbehavior they do place a a large responsibility on senior managers heads now to behave in the right way make sure that their teams are behaving in the right way and so the uk finance academy seeks to provide the skill sets to train up those individuals to better meet those rules yeah the principle of senior managers regime was sensible in the sense that the behavioral science says where you've got strong leadership and visible agenda setting leaders who are living the values who are clearly visible to their frontline workforce um, who set the tone What we discovered, though, quite early on, I was involved with a piece of research published in Australia around about the time that senior managers regime was launching. The Australian study showed that it is not enough simply to have senior people making speeches and saying, look, we've got a conduct agenda now. And the measure of this, and we showed that research to the FCA, and interestingly, they changed tack after that. So they used to talk exclusively about tone at the top which was this slightly utopian idea that all you need is senior people beaming down the right messages and it would trickle down and everyone would suddenly behave themselves better. That actually doesn't work. There is no direct correlation between senior manager rhetoric and frontline behaviour change. Now, if you think about it, there's any number of reasons for that, not the least of which is that middle management filtering effect that you often get in large organisations. What the FCA now says, which I'm much more comfortable with, is you need the tone at the top as a necessary precondition but you also need frontline engagement. And what has changed in the seven years that the SMCR has been active is far more recognition now that you've got to go direct to the front line and start conversations with customer-facing, client-facing practitioners and really awaken in them that often rather latent sense that they'd like to be convinced of the value of what they're doing. The great majority of people in our sector actually want to do a good job of work. They find it satisfying to help people to be able to raise finance for businesses to help imports and exports to create fluidity in markets through oiling the wheels of the economic machine Mm. if you like so using the banking system to help with fluctuations of money and enterprise and to keep things ticking over so most people understand that they have a real sense of doing something that is in the bank of england's words socially useful It's, Mm. it's fundamentally helpful to the economy But the problem is a lot of these activities are so hedged around with clunky compliance designs and risk metrics that people somehow feel nervous engaging in that conversation. So our role at the academy is to help that conversation to get started, to take some of the fear out of it. And a lot of the work Mm -hmm. that I do both at the academy and in-house with banks is translating these often very cumbersome risk rule sets and rather abstract conduct principles into language which people on the front line can understand and get behind and engage with. Great majority of people in the industry are actually happy to talk about this stuff. What's good service? How can we break down silos between teams? How can we recognize the value of what we're doing, not just in pure financial salary in my pocket terms? 
So just to take one example of an exercise we've done through the Academy, we went to the FCA and said, can we please take the five conduct questions, which some of your listeners may be familiar with. These were a legalistic formulation that challenged people to engage with the recognition of conduct risk and the calling out of conduct infractions. It was written by, I suspect, lawyers and very hardline compliance people. We said, can we take those five conduct questions, translate them into plain language that the average frontline staffer can understand? Look, I completely get that you have to have legal certainty and legal framings of concepts and so on. But the problem is a lot of the edifice of compliance is constructed by people who are very focused on risk management and legal certainties. And possibly in bringing that lens to bear, they forget that frontline practitioners would rather have simpler concepts to deal with. So let me just take one simple example from the five original conduct questions. Question one is what proactive steps do you take as a firm to identify the conduct risks inherent within your business? Now, I can get behind the language of that. I can see where it's going. The problem is it contains several abstract concepts. So proactive steps, conduct risks. So if you're not already trained up and familiar with the concepts of what is a conduct risk, that immediately is a kind of a game stopper. So what we did was just flip that straightforwardly into a conversation that said, what do I do to check no one's behaving badly in our business? Now, there is no technical language in that. It also gives all staff credit for being morally functional. One would hope that the great majority of people working in the industry are intelligent adults and they're perfectly capable themselves of calling out bad behavior when they see it. So rather than try and frame some complex legalistic definition of bad behavior, why not simplify and give people questions that allow them to engage at an intuitive level with that, rather than going all defensive? We did that, and the FCA, to their credit, said, yeah, we like that. You're welcome to use that, so we do. And it's all about just really getting right down through the organization, getting the senior and the junior people facing in the same direction, living the values, having open conversations, and where necessary, challenges if things are not working properly. Okay. And as a behavioral risk expert, you have spent a significant portion of your career researching why rules get broken in the financial services sector. I'm interested to know if you believe firms management understand now why that happens and if the rules in place now do enough to help create a culture of compliance within finance firms. So in the early noughties, I took myself back to university, got my uh, PhD looking at the psychology of regulatory design, which I know is incredibly niche, but my sense is that somebody had to do it. So I wrote my PhD on the role of chief risk officers in banks uh, just before what turned into the great financial crisis of 2008. And the conclusion of my PhD was that we needed to invest more energy, both as an industry and the regulators, in questioning patterns of behaviour. I argued very vigorously that we needed what I called a behavior-based regulator. And bearing in mind, I was writing this up back in sort of 2007, 2008, just before the markets fell over. At the time, it seemed quite outrageous and nobody has given much thought to that. We were still, if you remember, regulating finance based on very simple op-risk metrics. I just saw this as being a structural problem in the industry. I then, in 2010, 11, 12, found myself at ground zero for this new cluster of regulation coming in, this thing that we now call conduct regulation. I was looking at these prototype conduct regulation projects going on around the world, notably the Dutch Central Bank, who were saying observing culture in organizations is at least as important 
as checking on the validity of contracts and value at risk and all that stuff that regulators used to do in financial spaces. So by culture, we mean, most importantly, the behavior of people at the top, but also this sense that swaying with the rules, weaving around the rules, casual rule breaking, casual banter, whether it's ostracizing team members who don't play your little games, whether it's high selling teams saying that they don't want to talk to the auditor because they're too busy selling stuff, whether it's, I don't know, casual sexism and racism and these kinds of things that we're now calling out through the DNI scorecards. I thought this was just a great area to be in and it really addressed the root causes of misconduct. We were using the wrong indicators. The great issue to me is that the people who design rules tend to behave as if most of us are engaging with our rational brain. For those of you who are into behavioral science, there's this assumption that the rational brain is the dominant organ that gets us into the compliant frame of mind. Actually, if you study any of the big name behavioral science for the last 20 years or more, you'll see that most of us are motivated by satisfaction, by animal brain, by quick decision-making, intuitive decisions, and that we are very quick to disengage with a set of rules that we feel doesn't involve us or that a rule that doesn't understand, quote unquote, the way that I work. Now, the problem is the great majority of people working in the rule design space, and I include in this, unfortunately, politicians, lawyers, regulators, in-house risk people, let's call them the control designers. They work on the premise that we're all going to rationally engage with rules and understand at a rational level what the benefit of rule engagement is and therefore adjust our behavior in response to that rational conclusion. I have news for those people. Most of us are not doing that rational calculus. We're just going through life responding at a far more intuitive level. And if the rule design or the control design, the op risk design looks clumsy, we will disengage with it. So the person in the back office who's designing a cumbersome system, and again, there is this sort of legal fiction developed by lawyers and accountants and, and other rule makers, rule interpreters, that the more layers you add to the rule, the more likely people are to obey it. Well, clearly at a straightforward psychological level, that is not true. The more you complexify, the more people look for ways to just ignore the whole mass. And this is why when you get terms and conditions, whenever you buy a, a consumer financial product, you get 10 pages of terms and conditions and maybe a summary front page that just says sign here. Nobody reads the terms and conditions. And this is the thing that bugs me. And so my point is, well, can we not simplify? Can we stop this culture where everyone is in constant fear of getting blamed for some infringement against a minor bit of the TNCs that they haven't even read? Can we stop this thing of having compliance manuals of 500 or 1,000 pages or quarterly board papers of typically 400 pages I saw recently? I'm not saying don't be aware of compliance obligations, of course. But this idea that the more layers you add, the more people comply is just nonsense. So somebody has to challenge this. It's not just me, by the way. There's a group of us who are very lively in researching this, and we have a very active LinkedIn group where we exchange research papers on this. But our collective task is to simplify, start conversations, not to say ignore the rules. And of course, it's important that you also have that depth of knowledge of the rule specifics. But at a simple take, what the regulator wants is the industry to engage intelligently. And if the industry is to engage intelligently, we need to stop scaring people with these thousand page compliance manuals and actually say, look, here are five really straightforward things which you can start a conversation with. Everyone wants to feel satisfaction in their work, that what they're doing is externally useful. They want to have proper engagement in the value of their work mm -hmm. and that the external useful consequences of the work they're doing.
rather than just this sort of mechanistic box ticking approach that uh, sadly so many people in our industry fall into of just tick the box move on don't have any regard to wider consequences okay and so in answer to the question if the rules in place currently do enough to help create that culture of good behavior within financial services firms it feels like the answer is very much no i'll give you one very straightforward academic analysis which hopefully your listeners can relate to there's a theory of organization called the formal versus informal organization it's also known as the iceberg theory so you've got the formal organization which is the stuff on the surface that you can see so the published annual report the organogram the paperwork if you like the formal rules of the organization that are visible and tangible that we can see a lot of people mistake that for what the organization is of course the real organization is the informal which is as i tend to summarize it it's the conversations in the corridor mm -hmm. So it's the difference between the town hall meeting where the senior person is briefing everyone and supposedly inviting questions and actually then the conversation in the corridor after the town hall meeting when staff, particularly junior staff, say what they really think. Now, all the research I do in culture assessment, which is the next big thing in the conduct regulatory space, by the way. So there are two regulators already doing culture assessment and others looking very likely to swing into line. So culture assessment is the next wave of conduct regulation, and they are really looking for these soft signals of to what extent do the junior people believe what the senior people are saying? To what extent are there conversations in the front line to show that people have intelligently understood the consequences of their work? Mm -hmm. To what extent can you see that there's spontaneous engagement with values? There's a really simple regulator question, which I've had from a colleague at the Singapore Monetary Authority where they walk the floor and they just stop randomly in front of a trader's desk and say, so can you remind me of one of those values that your firm aspires to, you know, on the poster in your reception area? Remind me of one of those values. Hmm. And Mr. or Ms. Trader, show me a piece of work you're doing now, which is putting that value into practice. Now, I think that's a brilliant question because it achieves so much in a short space of time. Certainly. There's nothing technical about it. Clearly, if you've not started that conversation about aligning and putting values into practice if you've not already had that conversation the moment to think of an answer to that question is emphatically not the moment when the regulator is standing in front of you it's too late you have to have started earlier so what it does essentially is call the bluff of those firms who say we're living the values because god knows every financial brand has five six whatever values and they trumpet these and they stick them all over their esg statements and they stick them on their annual reports and they do staff engagement surveys, which come up with massive deep green responses saying, yes, we're all very values aware and, uh, and behind it. But actually that simple regulator test of asking you at an individual frontline level, what do any of those values mean? The other brilliant thing about that question is it's calling their bluff on, can you actually remember the values? Mm. Do they have any significance for you? And even if you can remember one, which often people can't, by the way, even if you can remember one, what is the consequence of that for your work? Have you thought it through in terms of mm. connecting it to what you're doing? Which is brilliant. There are only a handful of banks that I've worked with who've really got that. And I'm not going to name names. Okay. <laughs> uh, in response to the question of whether you believe firms management understand now why rules are broken, you mentioned this culture assessment that is taking place across the industry. And essentially that is a project in which financial services firms are seeking to determine the extent to which their cultural values are actually playing out within the workplace. And it seems to me fairly obvious that that body of work will enable firms to also understand why rules get broken and address those gaps there. It, do you agree with that? And can you tell us anything more about what those cultural assessments involve? Yeah, sure. 
And it was my privilege when I was compiling the book called Culture Audit in Financial Services, which I published last year. Um, I, well, yeah, it was kind of my lockdown project, actually, although I was really surprisingly far busier than I expected to be during lockdown, because a lot of firms, having sent everybody home to re work remotely, then found that there was an issue with morale and engagement and everything fell off a cliff in the second quarter of 2020 after we locked down. And then suddenly all the banks who I'd been engaging through the academy and elsewhere started calling me to say, can you do some of this stuff remotely? I ended up actually at my busiest year ever, financial year 2021, because firms were wanting more engagement. First of all, they were concerned about culture assessment, but also they just wanted to get a bit more human engagement and kickstart this conversation that we were talking about. So I had the good fortune that a couple of people who'd been in my classes had emigrated to Australia. And I saw after the Hain report, which your Australian listeners, I'm sure, will know all too well, which is a government commission that said that, I think to summarise, it's not unfair to say, there are serious systemic misconduct problems in the Australian retail finance sector as a whole. APRA, the Australian Prudential Regulator, and the Conduct Regulator got together and brought in some audit specialists. And they said, look, if we had to adapt conventional op-risk audits into this behaviour space, what tools might we use? What might work best? The Dutch Central Bank, DNB, published this fantastic manifesto back in the early 2010s. The, the master document was a piece they published in 2016, all about cultural assessment that remains really the grandfather work in this field. So the Australian regulators, the Singapore regulators, Central Bank of Ireland, the Federal Reserve Banks in the US all took note of this and said, okay, were we to adopt these principles, what audit practices would we need to change? What kind of questions would we need to ask? What sort of indicators would we need to look for which have not been used before? What possible indicator sets are in fact already within firms that they've not considered deploying for this purpose. So let's take a really simple indicator just as an example. Every firm uses training attendance as a core conduct metric. Now I'm not against people using training attendance as a metric, but training attendance does not give you any qualitative assessment of engagement what that metric of training attendance actually tells you is that there's a certain number of bums on seats or eyes on screens at a certain point in time. And that's all it tells you. What it doesn't ask is, did they put their training knowledge into practice? What was the difference on the front line after you went back to your desk, hopefully understanding what you know, understand? Did you find that the training in any way changed your behavior? Did it make you more thoughtful? Did it make you more understanding of the context of the market that you're operating in, any of this stuff. Now, firms tend not to ask those questions because clearly they're harder, not just harder to ask, but famously hard to assess. If you give people a question which looks like a, a, a self-certify your good conduct question, people are always going to gain the answer to that question. It's called a response effect. So how do you test real engagement without triggering response effects of people pleasing the teacher by ticking what they think is the right box? So again, I go very much to my research work with the CROs back in the early 2000s. But the people designing controls are not doing what you should do as a good behavioural scientist, which is observe what actually happens. More and more in recent years, we're looking more for external signals of how financial brands are seen as behaving. So things like consumer websites, Trustpilot, Glassdoor, Violation Tracker, DidTheyHelp.com. All these external observer websites, which are actually much more reliable proxies for is such and such a brand behaving itself, 
than the SMCR returns that that brand itself has compiled, which are, of course, introverted, inward-looking. We all think of ourselves as good people, of course we do. So my understanding of what you've just said, it seems that you're implying that the cultural assessments that are ongoing right now are looking at the wrong data to determine the culture within particular firms. Yeah, let me give you some examples of that. So indicators that make accountants comfortable are the conventional let's call them op-risk assessment type indicators. So capitalization, efficiency, solvency, profitability. And of course, as business people, we absolutely need those in order to see that the balance sheet is healthy. And that's absolutely fine. But all of those types of indicators are measuring the movement of money and the state of money and deposits and so on. Now, last time I looked, none of those is a reliable proxy for human behavior. If you want to judge behavior, you've got to have a whole different language of indicators. Now, this is difficult because... A lot of the concepts that this space uses are from the academic research and as such are quite abstract. And again, one of the challenges for me is to take high level abstractions and convert them into straightforward, concrete conversations of tangible things that people can identify in their day to day work. So let me give you some examples of where you take the abstract and flip it into the concrete. So the four abstractions that I tend to talk about, moral courage, number one, psychological safety cognitive diversity and social license. Now let's just pick out a difficult ones. Psychological safety, again, there's two abstract concepts wrapped up in that. So psychology, you've got to be comfortable with the notion of what do we mean by psychology, the functioning of the brain, how people engage with risk-taking, all that stuff. And safety, well, safety is feeling that you're, you're either threatened or not. There's either a present hazard or there isn't. So psychological safety, it's simply not feeling under threat in your day-to-day work. So it's not having to worry about being bullied or ostracized, or if you pluck up courage to ask what you think is an intelligent question in a meeting, it's not that fear of being slapped down for it. These behavior patterns are incredibly easy to identify once you Mm -hmm. start scratching the surface. Okay. Is there a deadline by which the cultural assessments need to be completed by? If you'd asked me a year ago when the book came out, I would have said that the FCA was going to step up and engage this. I had a fascinating, let's say, fireside chat with the regulator back in December when it became clear that for a number of reasons, and clearly, Lord knows, they've had the same challenges as the rest of us with COVID, with their own restructuring, with, let's say, a rearrangement of priorities in the calling out of the aspects of conduct that they're concerned about. And I think the issue we slightly have in London is that partly because the FCA's own rhetoric. We, we buy in slightly to this spotlight bias the FCA has of where the origin point of all this good thinking on the future of the shaping of conduct regulatory design. Well, they're very, very good, both the FCA and the PRA. They're thoughtful. They absorb a lot of knowledge. They run lots of experiments. Some outstanding behaviour researchers, I think of people like Paul Adams and Alex Chesterfield, who've gone through the FCA and massively informed their experimental work in identifying consumer harms. Brilliant, brilliant work. But... Can we not buy into the myth that the FCA is ground zero for the application of behavioural science to regulatory design? That accolade, that respect belongs, if anyone, to the Dutch, mm-hmm. who've been doing it since the early 90s. So in terms of the cultural assessments, uh, there yeah, isn't sorry, a deadline? We thought that there was a regulatory commitment to use culture audit in a formal sense by actually the end of 2021. That's now, they've kicked the can a little bit. We're probably going to start seeing more of the formal rollout, probably quarter one, quarter two, 2023. But... Even my saying that on the record is a slight hostage to fortune because who knows what the politics of the FCA are going to be in another sort of 12 to 18 months' time. 
Okay. And of course, the FCA has invested hugely in its behavioural economics team in recent years. What are your views on that? I'm right behind that. They're more acquisitive, more eclectic at looking for external sources to triangulate their understanding of behaviour. So they're not stuck in that regulatory trap. No regulator ever has all the resources they need to actually to do the job that they are tasked with by their political sponsors. And therefore, they have to co-opt the industry to provide the data that they need. Now, what modern behavioural regulators are getting much better at is looking outside that box for other evidence of misconduct. Mm-hmm. Looking at so-called unstructured spaces, social media particularly, citizen journalism, you know, self-styled consumer action groups and so on. So it's no longer just, oh, well, we talked to the ombudsman or, oh, we looked at your complaints department, you know. Now they're really maturing. AI is helping enormously with this. So things like the digital reasoning, what's now called Smash, which is able to listen and read all the conversation inputs from a large organization. So they do all the audio of the traders' tapes on the trading floor, all the emails, all the Slack channel, WhatsApp, and all the rest of it. And they use advanced linguistic analytics. This is why I like them to spot patterns of deviant behavior before the wave breaks. So I see the tech as heading in a really interesting direction on this. You mentioned the cultural challenges that banks were facing during the height of the pandemic. And we're now, if we can say post-pandemic, there's been a shift to a hybrid working model where you have some stuff working in the office, some stuff working from home. It's up for debate whether or not that will last through the tough economy we're about to enter. But what cultural challenges does the hybrid working model pose and how can those be mitigated against? I think just two headlines in particular, security, meaning surveillance, uh, oversight of possible events of misconduct. There is some evidence that in the early days of working from home, particularly, there were real concerns over grey market trading. You saw the recent prosecution, one of the big banks was hit hard by a conduct regulator for the traders using WhatsApp, what they call the channel switching problem. There's this proliferation of communication channels. There's kind of 20 channels now which the security and uh, trade surveillance people have to keep track of. Mm -hmm. So I think that was a real issue. Again, this one won't surprise you. It's culture and particularly engagement. And the world divided very roughly into two. So there were those firms who just almost shut their eyes and hoped that it would be business as usual, that everything would work all right, that people would find their own way. And the outturn from that was a fracturing of engagement of senior staff. One of the indicators I always look for is how visible are senior managers on the floor? Do senior managers habitually walk the floor and have these unstructured, serendipitous conversations with frontline people? So those firms that didn't have a culture of that, when working from home happened, there was this sharpening of the disconnect between frontline and senior people. On the other side, some firms saw it as a great opportunity to improve dialogue between senior and junior people. A lot of firms adopted this thing of what they call skip level conversations. So team members didn't just have their regular housekeeping meeting with their own line manager, but maybe once a month, they'd have an open meeting with a senior manager and anyone could ask any questions. So there are those coming out of working from home who are in a really good position and those who are surprised to find that a lot of their staff are suddenly getting jobs elsewhere. I think if firms have not invested in a more engaged culture in living the values in genuinely having a conversation with their frontline staff, Frankly, they deserve the consequences. Senior manager visibility is by far the most important thing. And probably the strongest outturn from SFCR has been to empower non-executive directors to be much more straightforwardly challenging in the boardroom. And this, in a sense, is one thing that the regulator really wanted to see. Mm. 
but overmighty executives who in the past have just steamrolled the Neds and said, how dare you ask? And actually, you're finding now that we're getting greater willingness to ask questions. I think, honestly, that's the big, possibly unacknowledged success story of SMCR. The big failure story is the woeful lack of effective prosecutions of senior managers for specific events of misconduct. I think SMCR, purely in terms of the statistics of prosecuting visible, senior, recognisable managers, again, it was based on the behavioural concept that if you can call out, as it were, named individuals, if you can put a face on the crime, Mm. then people are much more likely to come into line with behaving better. I think on that basis, it's failed, I'm sorry to say. Maybe the FCA set themselves up for a fall on this, but they created a lot of the drama around the launch of SMCR, a lot of the rhetoric was, we're going to call out the bad guys, we're going to name names and show faces, and that's going to satisfy this post-GFC public thirst for vengeance against the greedy bankers. And okay, I've oversimplified the agenda there, but that was partly what the behavioural science shows us is that people want to blame that guy for that complex thing that just happened. And actually, you could deconstruct SMCR and say it's all just about fundamental attribution of being able to pin the blame on a small identified group of individuals. That hasn't happened. Now, you could say it was a little bit disingenuous of the FCA to use that rhetoric in the first place, and that actually, as time has gone by, we need to call them out for that, the non-event of those prosecutions. So the FCA has made much of its efforts to target non-financial misconduct and actually an FOI that I directed towards the FCA that we discussed in a podcast published last week showed that the FCA had had 746 notifications of non-financial misconduct within the financial services sector in 2020 and 2021. The conclusion from that podcast was that there should be a high-profile FCA case arriving soon. To what extent do you believe that the FCA's focus on that misconduct will be effective in improving conduct and culture within the sector. And what more could they be doing? I think it's fascinating that we're getting all this rhetoric from the FCA. And I'm not necessarily saying the speech making is bad, but where's the action? Lloyds of London has just prosecuted one of its syndicates for sexist banter in the pub, uh, which is causing massive waves in Lloyds market. And I was with a firm a couple of weeks ago looking at the consequences of this, that they're quite nervous because in different subsectors, and Lloyds of London might well be one of these, there are some, let's call them, unevolved behaviour. There's still quite a male-based, drinking-based, informal culture, which maybe back in the day, a generation ago, might have been, if not defensible, possibly normality as we understood it, but these markets have not moved on. I'm aware, talking to the core regulators, the FCA and the PRA, that they have concerns around things like the broker market, the IDBs, that there's what they call a rather unevolved attitude towards conversations in those markets where let's say things as basic as gender recognition are not quite as as advanced as we might like them to be so the values are great where's the action what could the fca be doing to rescue it then call out some of the bad guys so let's hope that they do take action off the back of those non-financial misconduct notifications as others have suggested they might i would love to see that Mm. but who are the leading prosecutors of non-financial misconduct right now singapore germany the netherlands Central Bank of Ireland, there seem to be several other regulators making significantly more progress with this. Even in London, Lloyds of London, ahead of the securities regulator on this, what's going on there? Why is the major regulator of securities not the one leading the charge on this? We've got to ask them. Well, there's been plenty of food for thought from this podcast, Roger. Thank you very much for all your time today. It's been hugely interesting, and I hope to be able to get you back in, in a later episode to discuss where we are 
a few months or a few years down the line on all this? It's definitely a moving target. And one of the great pleasures of working in this field is there's no such thing as a sort of fixed point that says, right, this is good conduct, end of story. It's always moving. Consumer expectations, public expectations of the industry, thank goodness, are always moving ahead. And we've got to run to catch up sometimes. So that makes it all worth doing. You've been listening to Following the Rules with Lucy McNulty. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be very grateful if you could rate, review and subscribe on all the usual channels. It helps other people get to know us too.